So, Katie, do you have green fingers? I do not. Like, I mean, I think you're kind of talking about thumbs, and maybe British people do it differently, but I do not. <laughs> you, that's you don't what have green about, fingers, no, no, thumbs, no, no, no. or anything. Okay. I mean, not even the basil that you get from the store and a little thing. I mean, within days, it's like, you know. Oh, tell me about it. I, yeah, I've no idea how you actually keep those things alive. But but, but you, I mean, and I'm, of course I'm referring to this week's episode, you were actually in charge with growing things on the International Space Station, weren't you? I, who on earth decided to do that? Well, but even worse than that was that actually on SDS-93, we had one of the sort of pioneering plant experiments where we're growing plants in jello, and they put me in charge, and I was like, I could have a party, you could come over, you could see that there are no living things in my house. <laughs> so you do not want me to do this, but... Is a short mission. My job was to kill one of the precious darlings every day. So, so actually, I was this, really good. <laughs> this this was officially part of your mission, was it? This is why you were chosen. It was. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out they knew I could do it. <laughs> so we're going to get back to um, sort of growing food in space in a minute. But what else has been going on in the space world this week? You know, I hate to like. You're going to be talking about James Webb again, aren't you? Well, I mean, it's the nursery thing, the star. I mean, I love that sort of tower of pillars. So you're you're talking about the, the pillars of creation image that, that came out this well, last which few days. I have loved for years. And now there's one with the web and it is night and day, so to speak. It's almost like they took that one on a rainy, cloudy day with right. smoke stacks, right? And now- Right, but I was fascinated looking at these because you saw the two images. You saw the image of the, the Pillars of Creation from Hubble and the image from the James Webb Space Telescope. Of course, James Webb was, was pin sharp. It was incredible what you could see. Aesthetically, I still like the Hubble one. I must confess. I don't know. I, I think of it in a you know in a way also like you know when we have new instruments, new medical instruments that can measure differently, we can see more up close or differently, and and we learn stuff and we end up with better capabilities. So it's pretty yeah, cool. I love that. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're asking what is the future of food in space. Do you mean now that I'm going to say, yes, now that Katie isn't in the mix, the future is probably bright. It's well, I, I, I love this episode, I love this conversation because it's so important. Yep. I mean, you know, you go for a hike when you run out of food, whether you have a four year old or not, it's a big deal. Yeah, it just shows how important it is. And it, it, so it's interesting. I'm actually giving a, a big talk in a few weeks on the, the future of food. And the, the thing that always fascinates me is um, it's easy just to think of food as a sustenance, getting those, those things into your body that you need in order to operate. But it's not. Food is so much more. I mean, food is what defines us. It's part of our identity. You take away that identity, and who are we? And that's from a British person. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I was just going to ask being too long British with you. colored your, <laughs> your right. research. No, but it's it's so true. And even you know, people who are never sort of snacky or just kind of like, no, I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner up on the space station, I mean, I was with some of them, would just be a little sort of forlorn, sort of like, yeah, when's that supply ship coming? So it's weekly obsession time. Katie, apart from food and killing things, what have you been <laughs> obsessing about this week? 
My book is due the draft on December 1st. And wow. I am yes. pretty Do- obsessed with editing. And so it, it, I mean, people say, what's it about? I'm like, ah, uh, me, right? <laughs> But, but actually, no, more... that, that's that's not fair because it, it it's about sort of how you can actually encapsulate the things you've experienced and learned in a way that really benefits others. So it's not really about you. You're just the conduit here. Well, you know, I mean, on this show, we talk about such cool things. And we also talk about if we don't make sure that everyone feels invited to the party, we're going to fail. Right. Um, and so I just think that all of us existing now have some lessons for people you know, coming up and especially, you know, you and I are learning every day on the podcast here. So Andrew, what are you obsessed with today? I have been obsessing about the future of being human. So what do you, what do you mean by that? So I am really, really fascinated by how some of the incredibly powerful technologies we're developing these days are going to fundamentally change what it means to be human in, I don't know, 100 years or so. Everything from artificial intelligence to how we can tinker with our genes and possibly even change how we are, our physical being, how we think, everything about us. So we're actually starting this this really big project um, that's going to go for the next few years, starting conversations about what might it mean to be human in the future. Well, I was just going to say all those things you mentioned, I'm like, like, so you changed those things. Did that change being human? And I guess I should take the course because that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> right, right. And of course, that that's the interesting thing. I mean, who knows? But it is such an interesting conversation that it sparks ideas that actually change how we think about what we're doing in society and, and technology these days. So think about things like artificial intelligence. I'd imagine in 100 years, we had the possibility of us blending with smart machines. So now sort of you begin to sort of lose the sense of where humans finish and machines begin. I, that's, that's a crazy idea. It's possible. It's exciting. It's really, really scary. But even if we think about that possibility, what does that mean about what we do now around artificial intelligence? I'm way too obsessed with this at the moment. I Very exciting stuff. And of course, directly relevant to pretty much everything associated with the future of humans in space. So they're probably going to change the... I mean, could they change the fact that food is so important to us? Oh, that, that would be, be scary. Oh, goodness. See, yeah, you've got to come to one of our meetups now. We've got to have that <laughs> as a subject. Is food a thing of the past in the future? I like that. Well, today's guest is going to have something to say about that. <laughs> I think so. We talk a lot about food on this podcast, as you can probably tell, but the first astronauts like Yuri Gagarin and John Glenn didn't have very appetizing choices when it came time for dinner. They ate things like pureed beef, apple sauce, or other mushy food. In fact, actually, this sounds remarkably like a British diet, and foods that they squeezed out of tubes like toothpaste. Well, and people still ask me, it's almost the first thing, like, so you have to eat out of those tubes, right? And it's not the shape, it's like what comes out of them, right? But we don't eat out of those tubes. I mean, space food has come a long way since then. But until recently, you know, our diet as astronauts still consisted largely of pre-prepared meals, you know, often dehydrated, reconstituted with water, um, meals ready to eat like uh, the U.S. military eats. If humans are going to eventually live and work in space, which I mean, we already are, but I mean like on the surface of moon, Mars, or we're going to need to learn to produce food there. So what is the future of space food? Where are we in terms of being able to grow and produce our own food in space? To get answers, we spoke with someone who works every day on the complexities of growing plants in space. Brian Onate is Chief of the Utilization and Life Sciences Office at NASA's John F. Kennedy Space Center in Florida. 
Brian helped build the, and wait for this, the vegetable production system, short-coded veggie. It's beloved. (laughs) Who would not love a program called Veggie? And it was the first system to grow edible plants on the International Space Station. He leads a team of scientists, engineers, and project managers in research aimed at advancing our ability to produce food in space. Brian Onate, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Well, thank you. Uh, It's good to be here, and I'm I'm excited to talk to you and Andrew today. So, Brian, can you tell us what you do at the Kennedy Space Center? I am actually a supervisor in the group that I lead. It's called the Utilization Life Sciences Office. And our Life Sciences Office is the folks that actually grow all the plants that we have on uh, the International Space Station, and we also perform plant research. So I am so privileged to lead this awesome team of scientists and project managers to make this work happen. Katie, when you were up on the International Space Station, what was the plant life like? And I then I wanted Brian to tell us how things have changed in the intervening time. <laughs> well, you know, by the so time I went the to the Dark station, Ages, yes. back in the Dark Ages, by the time I went to the station, they knew me, okay? And they knew that I had no living plants at my house. And probably I should not be the one starring in the plant experiment. But I did actually on my on my second mission, SCS-93, we did have a, a plant experiment, which is, you know, back in the early days of just trying to find out little things, what stresses plants, things like that. And people were a little upset that I would be, you know, like in charge of them. And then they realized that my job was actually to kill one of them every day. And that was your real job or that's Seriously. just how it turned out? Well, right. because we wanted to see like on day one, how were they? On day two, how were they? And so that, and right. I was turned out to be actually remarkably good at that. And I've been a plant plant fan ever since, but it's come a long way. And I would love to hear really how it is because we were not growing food on the space station when I was there, but that has changed. Yep. It definitely has changed. So when you were probably in, on your mission, uh, there were probably not a lot of plant facilities on the space station. So right now we actually have two systems, I would say that are more for research, but also crop production. And then we have two other facilities that are really for more plant research. So Having four facilities on the International Space Station for us to perform our plant research and our space crop work is probably the biggest change, I would say. And it's just exciting to see that we have that that much real estate, right? I think of the U.S. lab as like the size of a large school bus. But if you were like flying along the lab and you looked right or left, what would you see? What is this? What do these look like? Sure. Uh, so if you were in the U.S. lab, in the lab and around Space Station, they have a couple... Um, uh, units that are called the express racks. And each of those express racks, I would say, are pretty much like large refrigerators, maybe a little bit taller, a little bit wider, let's just say. And each of those express racks have basically eight locations that you can install a payload. So we have one payload that's called the advanced plant habitat, and it takes half of that rack. So half of that rack is used to grow our space crops or do our plant research in there. Uh, we have another facility that we call the veggie unit. And it probably takes about a quarter of that rack um, and allows us to do plant research and actually grow some of our plants. And then I have two other facilities that are probably, again, a quarter, kind of like veggie. And uh, they basically are used for plant research and kind of help us with some of that beginning of plant growth and understanding what's going on with the plants to better help us in the future. Can you 
both help me understand what this actually looks like up there. So me just being a land lover, never having been up in space, I have this vision of uh, a corridor with plants growing either side. But of course, it's not going to be like that. So is it like being in a sort of a, a cylindrical tunnel with plants growing all around you and all over the place? Yeah, no, basically, um, just picture like a refrigerator in your home. And, you know, there's just a, a system or hardware that's installed into it. And basically, the plants live and grow within that system. So they don't kind of grow out into the aisle or, you know, into the, okay. the crew area, you know, they're, they're, they're contained. You're but, not you floating know. through a jungle up there. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to have your little machete or anything to chop your way through or anything like that. But yeah, yet, no, it's, yet. It, it's yet. not yet, not yet, but yeah, they're, they're pretty contained. But what, what are we growing up there? We have grown from leafy greens. So from uh, outrageous lettuce uh, on orbit, pak choy, um, Waltman's greens, um, it just a variety of leafy greens on orbit. Uh, we've also grown um, radishes uh, that was actually grown in the advanced plant habitat. Uh, we've grown peppers in space. So um, we, we are definitely trying to push uh, the limits, I guess, of um, what we want to grow on orbit. So yeah, it's been a variety of plants on orbit that we've grown. The crew gets to eat these. <laughs> yes, they it's all do. About food. It's all about food. So they do. So what's interesting is though, when we first started working with the um, flight doctors and making sure that the food or the plants that we grew were safe. So the very first ones that we grew, which were the outrageous lettuce, we did have to not allow the crew to eat that, which was very difficult, right? Because, you know, you're just stuck in a, a laboratory. I always tell everyone, imagine if you were just stuck in a laboratory at a university or, you know, even somewhere on a, a space center, right? And you couldn't leave for six months, right? And next, you know, you grew something fresh. And um, so that might have been a little bit of torture is what I'm thinking. But yeah, they couldn't eat that because we had to bring those samples back so we can actually test them for microbial content. You know, was it food safe? And um, once we were able to get over that hurdle and we can prove that we could grow food safely, on orbit, um, yeah, the crew has been able to enjoy uh, the fruits, right? Or the leaves or whatever we grew. They just <laughs> the, added the, the, the leaves of their endeavors. The leaves of their endeavor. I, I'm so glad you mentioned the, the microbial contamination because I was thinking when you said this about safety, what could be dangerous about a lettuce leaf? What could you possibly do to it to make it harmful? But of course, it's all the other stuff around it, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically everything around it. What, yeah, what is basically like the microbiome up there, right? What, what is up there? What are you touching? Did they just work on some hardware? Did they work on personal things? You know, it's like, how do you basically clean, right? Or how do you sanitize um, the produce that you get? So, um, you know, there's not, unfortunately, a sink, you know, and a faucet or anything that you can go wash your, you know, your leafy greens or, you know, the radishes or the peppers you grow. So uh, we've come up with some techniques to help with some of this, you know, but um, it's basically, is it safe? in that environment for them to consume. And, and we found that it was, so it was great. Can you talk about long-term goals? This is what we're doing on the space station, which we use to practice for both the moon and Mars. But when we start going, you know, we're going to live on the moon or go to Mars, what are the challenges that you face and how are you addressing them with what you're doing on the space station? Yeah, so uh, what we're doing on space station is, you know, it's a risk reduction, right? What can we learn from growing these plants on space station? So. Yeah, so some of the long-term challenges that we're seeing is really uh, like a water delivery systems. Managing water in microgravity is a challenge, right? Trying to get fluids to move where you want them to go is, is always been a challenge. So uh, definitely having a good watering system that not only could support microgravity, 
But even when we get to the lunar surface, right, or the Mars surface one day and the gravity levels being different, that's definitely one of the challenges that we have. A second challenge that we have is um, protecting uh, the seeds, right, or protecting what we fly up there. Right now, the space station, you know, we get a little bit of protection being part of the uh, Van Allen belt, right, or just the natural protection of, you know, being close to Earth. So, you know, when we get further away from that protection, you know, what, what happens to the, the seeds that we fly or what happens to the plants as they grow and the radiation in that deep space environment? How does that affect the nutrients? So there's just, uh, there, there is a lot that we still um, have to learn. Those are two of the challenges that we're looking at right now. So what is the advantage of growing stuff rather than taking packets of stuff up to space? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the pre-packaged food, uh, there's about 180, I believe, to about 200 items now that are part of the pre-packed diet that the crew members um, have. There might be up to like maybe like 20 beverages. So you're right. There's a lot of pre-packaged food. But what we're noticing over time is that there is a certain amount of nutrients that just are not there mm -hmm. as a pre-packed food. When we see the ability of us having fresh food or having basically nutritional supplement is one of right. the key things that we're looking for. So it's so that we can provide nutritious food for the crew, right? As a supplement, hopefully one day, you know, there'll be a nice greenhouse somewhere on the moon or Mars, but Basically, yeah, how do we optimize all those resources? So yeah, definitely looking at that. And this is probably getting into the weeds and pun definitely intended. But <laughs> he does that. Oh. <laughs> how, how do you make sure you get the right micronutrients up? Because of course, you don't just need seeds and water. You need a bunch of other stuff. There are a lot of techniques and systems that we are currently testing. So some of the items we use right now is slow release fertilizer, right? You know, so we can provide the nutrients and everything that the plants need in that direction. However, that does come into the substrate or it's part of the dirt that we call. Mm -hmm. We mix it in with this. So you do actually send dirt up there. Right. We do. We do. We actually send something that's called Arcelite. But how does that work, Brian? I mean, I think about, you know, dirt being sort of everywhere. It would actually be a hazard. So it must be contained in some way. It is. So we have, uh, in, for instance, in the veggie unit, we have these things that we call plant pillows. Probably not as comfortable as your regular pillow at home. However, same concept, right? You have a casing uh, and we just pack it in with this thing called Arcelite. So Arcelite is a base material. So if you think about a baseball field and you see that um, nice clay um, in the infield there where the bases are, it's basically that same color. It's just the particles are a little bit bigger. So we put them in these things called plant pillows. We add some fertilizer in there. We have a little opening on the top where a little wick comes out. And that's where we plant our seeds and provide the nutrients that they need. And I was joking around about our PGIM experiment, plant growth in microgravity. But uh, I remember that one of the things that they observed was that the roots were literally sort of drowning. And so you could think, well, that's a failed experiment. But actually, we're learning from all these failures. Is there other things that you've thought were going to work and then they didn't, you know, some stories about that are both victorious and also maybe frustrating and what you're still scratching your head to, to figure out? Yeah. So some of our first grow outs in these plant pillows, looking at those pictures, I hate to say, it, but they were a little embarrassing, right? I mean, no. it's just, you know, compared to everything we did on the ground, we're like, you know, we're expecting these beautiful, outrageous lettuce, you know, red and green. And yeah, we probably added too much water. We noticed that, for instance, one of them, 
the water content that was in there, it started actually wicking up, you know, up the plant. So we were kind of drowning the plant a little bit, you could say, you know, so really fine tuning how much water to add uh, was definitely something that we had to understand. And it finally got to the point that I would say about the third attempt, we finally were able to hit the mark on it and actually get the plants that we want, which was great. From everything that you've learned so far, what are the biggest differences between growing a plant in microgravity and growing it on Earth? It's looking at the fundamental when you think about the lighting, the air quality, the air composition, and looking at the watering. Mm -hmm. If you think here on Earth, if I have that plant pillow and I put the water injected at the very top, all that water kind of sinks to the bottom and it exits the pillow. So when we said, oh, there's a certain amount we have to add in microgravity, a lot of it just stayed within the pillow, right? It just naturally Mm. stayed there. So there's just a lot of differences like that that we learned. As simple as that sounds, um, you know, those are some of the other challenges that we're thinking in the future. Well, what's going to happen when I only have partial gravity, right, on the moon or Mars? You know, how is right. that going to affect our watering technique, right? How much water I add, right? So, so how do you even do that? I, I just thinking about sort of growing on the moon. So you're going to have this this massive database of knowledge from mm-hmm. the International Space Station. You'll know how to grow everything in microgravity, and then you get to the moon. You got gravity again. How do you navigate that? Yeah. So at the Kennedy Space Center, we have a facility that's called the Microgravity Simulator Support Facility, the MSSF. And actually, we have a couple machines in there that we call random positioning machines or clinostats, right? And we can turn and twist and move plants, you know, on all three axes. And these random positioning machines can simulate the lunar gravity, Mm. the Martian gravity. And we're actually growing uh, what we call microgreens on them. It's everything that we can do here on Earth to buy down that risk. So when we get there, I'm sure there'll be other lessons learned, but hopefully we have our best foot forward. I was saying, it, so- it sounds like a, a little bit of plant torture occasionally. And so <laughs> my, my question for you, and don't take this the wrong way, but what kind of people do these things to plants? Okay. <laughs> but I'd really, I'd love to, to know about, there's clearly not just you. There's a lot of folks there doing this research. And what are they like? Do they come from the plant world? Are they space people? Yeah, we have a combination of project managers, I would say, and project scientists. So our project scientists have backgrounds in plant physiology, horticulturists, some are microbiologists. So there's just an array of scientists that we have on the team. And then I have our project managers, which are really engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, So it's really getting this team of scientists, engineers, you know, together to make it happen. The scientists think big, right? They're dreaming like, I need this, I need that. And um, sometimes the dreams that they have or the equipment that they need, you know, the engineers and the physics come behind it, right? And say, well, we can do this or we can't do that, you know. But what's unique, I would say, is that our team is very small. So if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of probably plant research out there, uh, researchers in the universities, there's the farmers. But uh, when you think about people that grow crops for space, we're a very small community, but yet I think we do great things. But it strikes me that this is a community that's going to have to grow. If we're really serious about going back to the moon and going beyond that, I'm assuming we are going to want to grow crops. And I, I love the fact that you keep talking about space crops. Just that idea of space crops is mm-hmm. is amazing. But you're going to need space farmers. How do you scale here? Yeah. So 
this is what's interesting. It's amazing how many crew really just love working with the plants, right? And it's almost like we are trying to indoctrinate them or teach them all the lessons learned from previous crew that have been on station so that they can become space farmers. You know, we haven't really told them directly that they'll be space farmers for us, <laughs> but, um, you know, that's what we kind of envision. You know, how, how can we do that? I secretly think that this is a, a therapy program for astronauts. It's actually nothing to do about growing plants. It's about doing things that make astronauts feel good and comfortable and happy. What do you think, well, Katie? Certainly, well, I think it's certainly necessary. But I remember when Scott Kelly was up there for his year, being part of the plant growth experiment was really important to him. And and he seems like sort of a little less likely to be a tender plant guy, right? <laughs> I think of him more like <laughs> yeah. a steak guy. <laughs> yeah. So, Brian, what's the end goal? Are we hoping to be able to make a certain percentage of our food in, with respect to plants? How does the whole being able to go these places and have enough food to survive equation look to you? Yeah, I'm not sure if we basically got down to a percentage of what we want. However, I guess when we envision it is if for dinner, we're on the lunar surface, right? They've had a hard day of uh, exploring, you know, they're back in the, the habitat, you know, they're going to have a chicken dinner, steak dinner, whatever they have. And can you just envision someone just walking in to the plant module and just, all right, I'm just going to grab some lettuce. I'm going to just grab some uh, tomatoes here, maybe a pepper or something, and just making a fresh salad, right? And just being that complement to your dinner, right? So it's almost like the starter of your dinner. So can it just be part of their diet, you know? So really no percentage, but looking to have that module on the surface is the goal that we envision. We want that module that they just grow the plants and there's always something there that they can go have that only not only would give them nutrients, but I also think there's just a psychological piece to it that, that we have just noticed by talking to the crew members. That seems to be so important. I Food for the soul as well as for the body. And, and we know from studies on Earth just how critically important the variety of food is, access to different types of food, how food defines you and uplifts you. Uh, so it, it seems like we just can't ignore that at all when we're looking at, at growing crops in space. I wondered... As we think about, as I think about going to Mars, we're going to have that phase where people are like climbing in the, you know, the moon rover, the Mars rover, off to work, coming back. And actually, they just want food. And these might not be folks that want to take the time to be farming, so to speak. So it seems like we're going to have different ways of thinking about making food in these places. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely true. And um, so some of the work that we're looking at is automation. Uh, what can we do? Um, you know, if we had a a robotic space farmer that can uh, water the plants, check on the plants. Uh, we're also looking into imaging, right? We have a study going on right now taking images of plants that are underwatered, uh, plants that are watered at the right amount, and plants that are overwatered, and basically taking images over and over every day and then studying those images. So if we can build the database and um, basically have that system take control and just manage the plants, you know, unless they really want to. Um, but yeah, we're, we're looking into that too, which would be exciting. So. so Brian, to wrap this up, I suspect there are lots of people listening to this who are thinking, this is just unbelievably cool. I want to be involved. I want to create food for space. I want to be a space farmer. I want to be a space chef. 
what should they do if they want to get involved with food in space? So from the Kennedy Space Center point of view, I'm just so proud to say that we are leading the agency in plant research and crop production. So we need everybody. We need engineers, whether they're electrical, mechanical, software engineers, because we have to design these systems for the future. I need a habitat on the moon one day. So I need all those engineering skills. I need scientists, right? Whether they're plant physiologists, horticulturalists, uh, microbiologists, scientists to help drive those requirements and um, tell me what is it that I need to grow, right? And work with the engineers to develop those projects. We need technicians, right? We need qual engineers. We need business people because it's going to cost money to do this, right? (laughs) So I I think we just need everybody to make it happen. So um, but really, if you want to be a space farmer, right, and, and join this, exceptional group of people. It's um, engineering and scientists is what we need because we definitely want to keep pushing plants and exploration as much as we can. I love that. So expect to be utterly inundated with CVs after that. (laughs) Brian, all this research for growing plants for, in a way, not too many people yet, right? Um, But we're learning a lot. How does this impact folks here on Earth? So if I give a little bit of history, for instance, so mm-hmm. um, some of the LED lighting that we use on orbit, which is very efficient and very targeted for growing plants, it was started by NASA funding that allowed this to happen. And now some of that lighting, LED lighting that was created, right, or that technology development is now used in vertical farming. So when you think about some of the industries up north or some of those old warehouses, uh, vertical farming is becoming a big business across the board. So it's great to see that the money that NASA spends on some of these technologies, it does benefit Earth. And that's one of the prime examples that comes to mind right now. I loved your reference to automation in that food is critical down here too, where we have limited land mass and some Mm -hmm. places it's harder to grow it and land is big. You know, how do you, how do you check and make sure you, you know, know what you're growing? And it seems like that automation that we're developing for space might be applicable down here as well. Yeah, for sure. And and especially the plant health monitoring that we're doing and is, you know, how can we just um, get that there? So if you just have a whole vertical farm, you can just take a camera and sweep it across and maybe pick out the plants that need a little bit more help or maybe plants that are getting too much, you know, back up on it. And so, yeah, that automation and plant health, I think is going to be very big to benefit Earth. I could use that in my house along with a 911 for the plants. But <laughs> <laughs> Brian and Arte, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Hey, Katie, what do you think that was? 
I think that my dream has finally come true a little bit late for me, but just so good for everyone else. The Johnson Space Center is finally relocated to the Caribbean. <laughs> right, right. So, so what time of and, and day is this? Like the, is, is this like about the background sort of, music at Michigan Control, you know? Right. I, I was just wondering <laughs> if this was one, one o'clock in the morning where the sort of the party is just getting into that mellow phase. To me, it's, it seems like, you know, some, something is measuring something and whatever is happening, it happens like a little at a time here and there. It tells me the universe is alive, but I don't know what it's seeing. Actually, I, <laughs> yeah, no, I actually, I really like the alive bit. So actually, this is one where I think that the sound belies the, the power of, of the source. That was the sound of a blazer. Oh, that- a blazer? Really? Oh, I love those. <laughs> Andrew, I have no idea what that is. Explain. I was going to say, I was, admit it, Katie, you have no idea what a blazer is. I do not. This actually is quite incredible. So many of the supermassive black holes at the center of most galaxies are surrounded by a swirl of material, gas, dust, and even whole star systems that gets drawn in by the black hole's immense gravity and devoured. This swirling material produces an immense amount of energy, making the center of these galaxies extremely bright. Some of these bright, hot galactic nuclei shoot out insanely powerful jets of matter at close to the speed of light, and this is what creates quasars. Now, when that jet comes directly toward the Earth, it's not called a quasar, it's called a blazar. And this was actually new to me. And they're the brightest objects in the universe. Now, what you heard here were the gamma rays emitted by a blazar called, and this is such a prosaic term, TXS 0506 plus 56. Remember that. NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope detected these gamma rays, and the great folks at System Sounds converted them into sound. In this sonification, which is not a party at the relocated Johnson Space Center, higher energy gamma rays are heard as higher notes. And I I can't get over the fact that this is one of the most powerful things in the universe, and it sounds like a party. (laughs) I love that. Um, so, no, I, I love this. It's another sort of glimpse into the unbelievable power and awe and might of the, the universe as we hear these signals. And actually, as we hear them in this sonification, as well as study them. It's awesome. So why don't we listen to that again? That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, if you haven't already done so, go and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. That means that when you wake up on Tuesday, we will be there. You can leave us a review, write to us from our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU for Interplanetary Initiative and send us a tweet. So please do recommend us to your friends because we would really love that. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. Our intern is Mason Miller. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.